Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to this week's episode of Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Joe Hagan, and an extremely special guest, the most special guest, our colleague, our friend, Abby Tracy, who is our national political reporter for Vanity Fair and the Hive. And she is just an absolute general reportorial rock star, but she has been covering so much great stuff or terrible stuff out of Washington. And she did phenomenal reporting uh, around last year, January 6th, and and is sort of continued to beat the drum and go back to Washington this year for the anniversary. So we're so happy to have her on this week. Welcome, Abby. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I am delighted as always to be here. And thanks so much, Abby, for coming on. You know, everybody's talking about this. We're coming into the new year. Kind of like, talk about a reality slap in the face, like right after we come out of the holidays into this, talking about basically the most momentous historical event in the 21st century democracy in America. So the thing I've been obsessing on is whether or not this commission that has been created to find out what happened, uh, we'll be able to deliver a kind of clear narrative for us to wrap our heads around and to kind of understand uh, what it is that happened to us. Because uh, today, the poll just came out as, as we sit here. Axios came out with a poll. And it said uh, it was about whether Biden's presidency is legitimate. Okay? This is related mm-hmm. to January 6th, of course. And uh, 55% said it's legitimate. Okay. And then you've got your 29% who are the people that we know, but then like 16% say they don't know. It's unclear. And these are very disturbing numbers. And it's a reminder that at whatever was at the center of the January 6th tragedy, it's still with us and it's going to be with us for the rest of this year. So that's why we're here in addition to the it being the anniversary, this isn't just about this week. It's about for the next several months until the midterms, and it's about the future of the democracy. Yeah, I, I think one, you know, kind of to your point around the commission and the report, over the last several days, I've been revisiting what we saw the day of January 6th last year and, you know, comments from lawmakers that we saw in the, the following days or, you know, the immediate aftermath of the Capitol attack. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, initially you had this full-throated response from a number of Republicans who then over time kind of watered down those very stances. And I do think that that has created a an erosion of understanding of what happened that day and has been really troubling. You know, 
I look back at it and Tom Cotton and uh, Ted Cruz, they issued these very intense statements, you know, that day saying, you know, go home. This is an attack on our democracy. But then you fast forward and look at kind of the statements and everything that we've seen from them in the days since, and especially around Biden's uh, presidency and, you know, his election. And really it has they've muddled, like muddied the waters beyond belief. And so I think, I think initially there was almost more of a clarity around January 6th Mm -hmm. and what was happening than there is today. And while the commission, I think, is doing very good work, uh, a number of things that we've seen come out of there, I don't believe that all Americans are going to sit down and read, you know, uh, hundreds of page report on what happened. And it's really going to come down to what our elected officials are saying, specifically elected officials that fall within their party line. And I just think that we're almost in a worse place today in terms of the understanding of January 6th than we were on January 7th or January 8th of last year. I have a two-part question for you. The first is, If it is going to need to be clearly articulated from these elected officials, A, do you think that these hyper-partisan elected officials will ever come clean about the so-called big lie? Will they ever actually be clear about what happened? And B, is there an appetite for that? If they were, if every politician were to come out and, and Fox News host were to come out and say, Joe Biden is legitimately our president. This was insane. We all lost our heads. Like this, there was no stolen election. This is all legitimate. Do you think that this would actually be cleared up in any way? I I don't know if there is a way to actually get people who have believed this for more than a year now to ever believe this. So is it hopeful to think that they will do the right thing? And if they did the right thing, Will anyone who's entrenched in these beliefs actually change their mind? So I absolutely don't think so. <laughs> um, I actually think your your B feeds your A, mm. right? I think these politicians are running the calculus on it and they've identified they think there isn't an appetite for that. And that's why you've seen these shifting stances and them kind of continuing to push the big lie. I think at the end of the day, look, not every politician, but most politicians are focused on their next election, their next race and winning it. And I think they're running the numbers on this and see that as the key to winning their base, kind of continuing to push this because it is a top-down thing. It's still coming from Trump. And I don't think any individual, I think collectively they could push back on it, but I don't think any individual politician is enough to kind of rewrite rewrite that narrative or rewrite the big lie. And I think on an individual level, at the end of the day, they're out for themselves. And that's a very cynical thing to say, I think. But I think it is reflective of that appetite, as you said, you know, this idea that I don't think that exists. And as a result, I'm not, you know, bracing myself or hopeful for a bunch of profiles and courage just now that we're coming up on the one year anniversary by any means. Right. The only way you're going to see any quote unquote courage is whether or not there are facts that emerge that show a direct link between some of these elected officials and some of the mobs that did this at the Capitol on January 6th. Let's just take, you know, Ted Cruz, uh, you know, was objecting to the certification 
of Biden's presidency, like 15 minutes before the Capitol was breached. There is already like a indirect connection between all of these objectors and these big lie politicians and what happened among all these people who many of whom are going to go to jail for for this. And and we're sort of looking at this commission to say, can you draw straight lines from these mm-hmm. officials to actually what happened? That was there a coordinated attempt at a coup, at an insurrection? I mean, from all the smoke, it's pretty clear there was some fire here. And for me, I'm looking at it, the, to me, the indirect uh, causation is strong enough to make you question whether these people should still be in office. And that's why these subpoenas are so important in the legal battle that's going on. Can we get a look at you know, Trump's emails? Can we look at the phone records of Kevin McCarthy and the people that were going back and forth and see, you know, on the one hand, you've got, did Trump actively not do something about it? Okay, that's one thing. But also these groups, we know about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, and now they're looking at this other one, 1AP, the the First Amendment Praetorian. Mm -hmm. And just to your point about the cynicism, I mean, cynicism about the GOP right now is just sanity, right? Because there is a bottomless cynicism there. And the muddying of it, it's not beyond just muddying it. I feel like they've baked in the lie and they've baked in January 6th into their political, you know, identity. And basically arguing, as Trump seems to continue to argue that, you know, that these were that these are patriots, right? On the day it happened, he said that these are patriots who love their country, right? He has never really let go of that. And as long as he doesn't let go of it, the rest of the party's not going to let go of it. And therefore, uh, what do we have as leverage on the other side to kind of force reality here, right? You need uh, the rule of law, right? You need facts to emerge that everybody accepts and then plug these two things together and hope that there are some ramifications. Because the only way that Republican elected officials are going to respond to reality of January 6th and take it as a serious thing is if it has legal ramifications. Abby, can you can you walk through what some of those legal ramifications would be? Because I sort of am of a mind that, yes, it is incredibly important to draw these straight lines that you were just talking about, Joe, for the health and well-being of our democracy and and foundationally to support everything that the United States stands for. But I I worry that we are in a post-line reality where on an ethical ground and foundational ground, you are 100% right, we need to do this. And I, I also feel like it won't matter to these people. And even if you draw the straight lines and say, and, and scream and, and air this uh, prime time nationally, as they're talking about doing, like it just won't matter. We are in a post factual reality right now for half the country, and so I sort of feel like doing this is important because it's important to do. But I don't know that it's actually going to do anything, and so I don't. I don't know this. I, I'm wondering what their legal ramifications would be, so that maybe there is a point to doing all this beyond us just standing on on moral grounds. 
So I think one of the things is we're already seeing some legal ramifications. I, I don't know what the exact toll is today, but seven over 700 arrests of individuals uh, who were involved in the attack on the Capitol. I don't think those individual, you know, kind of citizen level arrests are going to make much of a difference unless, you know, that's a family member or a friend or somebody that you knew directly. But even still, I think even if you possibly know somebody who was one of those arrested, you might still be like, oh, it's part of the big the big conspiracy or, you know, the Biden administration or something along those lines. Um, in terms of other legal ramifications, we're starting to see what that looks like and what it looks like from a congressional power standpoint, which I think is really an important thing to think about. Kind of to your point, Emily, I don't know what the real impact is going to be of it, but it's critical at this point, just given especially what we saw in terms of congressional power, congressional subpoena power during the Trump presidency. You know, so many of the efforts by House Democrats to flex that constitutional authority were, you know, swatted aside or didn't work or were, you know, trumped by kind of a false use um, or misuse of executive privilege and executive powers uh, by the former president. But what we're seeing now, given the fact that there are two chambers and uh, two chambers in Democratic control, and then obviously Joe Biden in the White House, we're going to see what that subpoena power already looks like. We have seen it again already with some of the officials that have been called in and now are being threatened with, um, you know, there is jail time. <laughs> like there is like legally these people can go to jail for it. And I actually think Back to your point, I don't know how much it'll change, you know, a sentiment or, you know, the minds of individuals across the country who really believe in the big lie. But in terms of our the foundations of our democracy, incredibly important. Like you can't get a congressional subpoena and not show up. And I think it'll be really important that, you know, the DOJ does enforce those powers of Congress as we sort of move forward. And, you know, some of these individuals from Trump world don't come forward. I do think one of the key, kind of one of the key groups to watch is the individuals who are caught up in this, you know, kind of like a Mark Short, the individuals who are caught up in this, who had that window into what was happening on January 6th, but also aren't elected officials who don't have that sort of, um, you know, self-focused approach to what their participation may or may not look like. I think effectively this idea of, all right, like what is in it for them or sort of what could they lose? And I think it's going to come more down to individuals like that who aren't who aren't politicians, who aren't in those elected positions, but who were around and hopefully do the right thing in the days to come. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? 
Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Hive. Let's let's get specific about that a minute. Like maybe it's going to come down to some figures who can tell us from the inside what the connections were between the politicians who have their own motivations about how to tell this story and the groups that were involved and organized in in the kind of mob attack on the Capitol. Um, And even people like Sean Hannity being brought into the congressional inquiry and having to you know, be brought before to testify, for instance, about what they were saying and what was going on behind the scenes. What are his connections to some of these groups, too? Um, uh, you know, a lot of the I, I guess what it comes down to is, um, and this has been a big question, is whether when the final report arrives, whether Merrick Garland decides that it's time for the Justice Department to apply some of the findings to, you know, an inquiry or a prosecution of some kind, because obviously, no, this committee doesn't have any actual legal powers. It just has the power to do fact finding. And so people are going to look to Merrick Garland when the final um, report comes in. So I've been asking a little bit around about what is the timeline of this hearing. So, I mean, of this uh, committee, there's going to be public hearings in the spring. I'm told, and a lot of people are going to be deposed and asked to testify, including, for instance, the uh, Secretary of State in Georgia, uh, Raffensperger, who obviously Trump leaned on him to change votes, and uh, and we don't even know who else, people that may be currently resisting subpoenas and then be forced to testify. Um, and I'm, I'm also told there's going to be like an interim report sometime in the mid to late spring, and that we'll get a final report early next fall in the lead up to the election. And that's, you know, I don't think you can separate out um, this inquiry. I don't think you can separate this inquiry from the politics, obviously. And as we're moving into the midterms, the narrative of what this committee tells us is going to define, uh, it, it could potentially define what happens in the midterms and the way people view what's at stake in this election. Joe, do you really think that people are going to vote in the midterms about what happened on January 6th? If they're scared, if they're scared. I mean, the thing is that this is a question that we've uh, recently had in some meetings uh, at Vanity Fair in the Hive. Is there are so many stories that have been written, uh, the latest one by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine is worth checking out, that say, yes, indeed, if you don't pay attention to the ramifications of January 6th and the way that it's been integrated into the Republican Party's kind of identity. If you don't take it seriously, their attack on democracy, we could be living in a dictatorship, mm-hmm. you know, one or two election cycles from now. The way that the Republican Party has been focused on on attenuating voting rights in, in various states and the way they're very organized way in which they're going about making it so that if they 
election outcome is not to their liking, that they could come up with some trump card or some way of like undoing elections they don't like, and then you're no longer living in a democracy. So this is obviously a narrative that the Democrats have a vested interest in telling and highlighting. And the question is, is, is that is it real or is it political? Does it matter? I mean, it is pretty clear uh, since what uh, Trump was out here supporting. Can you guys remember the name of the uh, <laughs> president of uh, Hungary or the Orban? Yes. Yeah, so, so Trump was out there, you know, in support of, of basically a, dic- a fascist dictator. So that tells you what you need to know. Tucker Carlson has already interviewed this guy and glorified him as a model for what like the Republican Party could be there. They're not like hiding that they want to be a a dictatorship. They're not hiding it. So um, they're, you know, trying to separate what is fear and what is the reality of what is about to happen is difficult to do. But in the midterms, uh, the Democrats can make a very strong case to the voters that uh, this is a life or death situation for your country. Yeah, no, to to your point. So I'm, I am working on a, a piece that's actually looking at what's going on in Pennsylvania right now. So obviously in the Senate right now, you look at voting rights and Democrats' efforts to, you know, restructure voting rights in the country and kind of, you know, solve some or close some of the holes and gaps that we saw present themselves uh, during the last election cycle and, you know, over many election cycles in their view. And but one of the things is, you know, it's very unlikely to pass. Like you talk to anyone in the Senate right now and they're like, Joe Manchin is just not going to get on board with this. And that's the game. You know, that's the whole game right there. So what's happening, though, in Pennsylvania is, you know, the governor's race Right now, there is a Republican state legislature and a governor whose nickname, Governor Wolf, but they nickname him literally Governor Vito. So the state legislature in Pennsylvania right now is passing all these bills that are not unlike what we're seeing in Texas around abortion and voting rights and just kind of very, very far right kind of fringe level uh, legislation. And but. The governor, the Democratic governor, has kind of been a backstop to those things becoming law in the state of Pennsylvania. This upcoming election cycle, you have the governor's race. You obviously have the Pennsylvania Senate race uh, because Pat Toomey chose not to go back up for reelection. But the important thing is the governor isn't just the governor. The governor appoints the secretary of state and then you have the AG and then you have the lieutenant governor who runs on the ticket with the governor. So really what you have is a potential total restructuring of the leadership at a gubernatorial level and down in the state of Pennsylvania. And if you think about 2020 and Joe Biden and the critical role that Pennsylvania played in, you know, his victory, if you then imagine a Republican governor who, you know, decided not to veto some of the stuff that we saw, not to go along with what we saw in the state of Pennsylvania, as we saw from, you know, the Democratic governor and then the Democratic AG in the state, we could have Donald Trump as president, potentially. Um, And I think talking to Democrats in the state of Pennsylvania, especially ones who are 
on the ground level, you know, working at that grassroots level, working in these districts and interacting, you know, with Republican colleagues in the state legislature, there's a real fear of what could happen in 2024 and what could have happened in 2020 had there not been that, um, you know, Democratic and Republican kind of system of checks and balances uh, in the state. So, it's important to pay attention to Pennsylvania right now. There are other states where it is too, but really, you know, as a state, it's one of those few, it's one of those few states really left that is a quote unquote battleground state in a real way. And I was speaking with um, Mark Elias, who has been, you know, kind of one of the lead attorneys working on these voting right cases and prosecuting some of these lawsuits that we've seen in, you know, since January 6th around, you know, election fraud claims and all of that. And one of the things he said that was really important or really stood out to me is that people are kind of missing is, you know, the voting, crazy voting rights or crazy voting restrictions in a state like Alabama. That's not what you should be paying attention to because the margin there is it's not going to make a difference in some of those deep, deep red states. He said that where it really matters is in a state like Pennsylvania, where you're looking at races that are by like 0.5% of a vote, 1% of a vote. And so while people, you know, might get up in arms around some crazy laws that they're seeing in these deep red states, what they really should be paying attention to is what's going on in these, you know, more battleground states or states where people think what they're seeing is more sane or not totally crazy. But in reality, that's where it's at the margins. And that's where it's really going to make a difference, especially as we look ahead to, you know, this coming election and obviously 2024. Mm. This this speaks to me as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania in in a swing distant district in the swing state. My whole family still lives there. We actually had the attorney general who's running for governor on this podcast. Maybe this feels like a good time to to get him back. Abby, I, I want to take you back to a year ago. You did phenomenal reporting around what happened on the 6th. And I wonder if you can sort of take us back to to where you were on that day, uh, what you found in the days and weeks after, who were who the people you talked to and what did they say? And then bring us back to today. Where are, are those people now? What are they doing? What has changed for them? What are what are they reflecting on? I know you're spending time in Washington this week around the anniversary. So take us back and then bring us forward. Yeah, definitely. So last year I was, it happened so fast. I mean, people saw it coming. Like you definitely knew that this was coming for anyone to say, oh, you know, we had no idea. The writing was on the wall. Like we saw this build up. It was all over social media. You saw individuals like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson sort of amplifying these messages around January 6th and, you know, going to the Capitol and everything. Um, And the day of though, I think it took on a chaos and level of tragedy that was unexpected in terms of degrees. But that day, I just remember texting with dozens of Hill staffers who I've been in touch with over the years who are just telling harrowing tales of, you know, being barricaded in an office and, you know, pushing up chairs and furniture against doors so they wouldn't, you know, so people the insurrectionists who were banging on the door couldn't get in. I had a friend who he was outside. And remember, this was also during the pandemic. He was outside getting his first shot of a vaccine and was outside at a vaccine site where a nurse was uh, about to inject him. And he just overheard a Capitol police officer on his microphone saying, this is bad. This is really bad. Uh, 
we don't know what we're doing. And he was getting a vaccine shot and immediately ran inside and was just trying to find his boss, trying to find his colleagues. So it was just pure chaos. But there was also at the time very little information coming to individual staffers, to individual lawmakers. Nobody knew what was going on. There was a complete, you know, you weren't hearing anything from the speaker. You weren't hearing much from anyone kind of in a position of authority. Nobody had direction. And obviously the Capitol was completely overtaken. So it was confusing. People were scared. And I just remember speaking with countless lawmakers who were kind of up in the gallery where the proceedings were taking place. And then suddenly they hear the gunshots. I, if you recall, you know, an individual uh, Capitol Police officer shot through uh, the doors and it killed one of the individuals who was sieging the Capitol. But they just remember being up in the gallery and hiding and not being able to get out, not being to, able to escape. Uh, I also, you know, one of the most tragic stories, I think, was speaking with Congressman uh, Jamie Raskin, whose son had, he had buried his son the day earlier uh, and in a tragic death. And his daughter and her fiance came to the Capitol that day because they they knew something was going to happen. They didn't want to be separated from the congressman. And they were in the Capitol. He was on the House floor at the time and they were barricaded in an office somewhere else, you know, in the house building. And he just couldn't find his daughter. And keep in mind, again, this is one day after he buried his son. And listening to him share that story with me last year, it was incredibly emotional. It was incredibly scary. And it was a really good reflection on this isn't, this wasn't just, you know, something to forget about, you know, and I do think it seems as though many Republicans have had a collective memory loss around how bad it actually was that day. And even a number of the staffers who I spoke with on January 6th of the last year have since left the Hill. I would say three of them I've spoken with, they've since gone on, you know, into the private industry or other offices that are elsewhere across the country. And they've credited what happened on January 6th as a huge part of it. You know, so many individuals have PTSD and are having such a hard time. And there's a real anxiety, fear, um, concern that when you talk to individuals today, who are still Hill staffers or who used to work on the Hill, they're terrified as to what is going to happen this year. And I think people can't forget just how bad it was. Like this was a complete attack on the Capitol. Individuals were in the Speaker's house. They were yelling death to members of Congress. And it was terrifying. You know, Capitol Police officers died. And you still see Republicans kind of pushing this big lie and almost acting like it, it was no big deal. You know, nothing, nothing terrible happened. And I do think it's, it's really tough. And it's almost strange that we're back here. We're still sort of in a pandemic. It feels a bit like a, you know, kind of horrific Groundhog's Day of sorts that we're back here. And it just feels like the environment around you know, uh, kind of the this very deep-seated partisanship and anger in the country is the same, if not worse. It's 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 it almost feels like no lessons were learned in the days leading into January sixth of last year and where we are today. If that makes sense. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, and I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. 
Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Well, that's what that poll I was telling you about is like the the entrenched partisan realities that and alternative realities in, in, in a lot of cases uh, remain alive and as potent as they were then. And just to, you know, I remember, you know, hearing some of those stories you were mentioning, uh, the emotional stories uh, during the impeachment trial. And it was as if between the events themselves and the impeachment uh, trials, uh, the Republicans realized that their entire political lives hinged on reorienting the entire story. Because on the day it happened, you had Kevin and the week after you had Kevin McCarthy, you know, Ivanka Trump, Sean Hannity, everybody like, oh, my God, this is not what we had in mind. This has gone out, you know, this is beyond what we had thought was going to happen. We were thought we were engaging in some political theater here. And now it's turned into this. And meanwhile, Trump uh, does nothing about it. Right. And this is all going to come out more, I think, uh, you know, as the. We get public hearings, but that sense that the GOP decides uh, our political, you know, lives depend on pretending this doesn't exist, or pretending this didn't happen, or pretending it's not what it was, and you know, the comical ability to go and look at those Kevin McCarthy quotes where he blames Trump directly uh, and says this is his doing to his reverse, complete reverse. Um, you know, in and of itself would make you think, oh, my God, these are the most horrific, cynical, terrible human beings uh, on the planet. Uh, and yet our collective ability, our, you know, our ability to forget and to get lost in the haze of propaganda is where we are today, where it's like a year later. And what those, what those events looked and felt like on that day, which were the reality, right, of what, of what actually happened— have been kind of, uh, you know, become hazy and dif- more difficult to understand. And to your point, Emily, about even when you get all the facts together uh, and you've got a big complicated uh, report of some kind, are people going to read it? Are they going to care? Are they going to interpret it and discern it? You know, there's got to be a smoking gun. That's the only way that people get things nowadays. There's got to be a, it can't be just lots of, Lots of, uh, you know, one of these sort of, uh, you know, like in a cop show where they're drawing strings and lines between all these different things and trying to show you a conspiracy. Somebody has to be brought to bear who is in power uh, and their feet have to be held to the fire and everybody has to see it. You know, maybe maybe I'm too cynical. (laughs) I I don't I don't know, because look like we saw we've seen this play before. Right. Mueller report. There it was. I was literally just thinking about the Mueller report, like 
I have maybe I have PTSD yeah. from the Mueller report, but I don't think this is going to matter, guys. I I'm I think it will matter yeah. in the big thirty thousand foot view sense of matter. We tell our children like we did the right thing, right? But in terms of sentiment and and actual behavior and thinking on the ground today. Even if you have a, a smoking gun, even if someone is brought to bear, which those are those are even ifs, but even if those are true, I don't think you're going to change the mind of most people in this country who believe what happened happened. I just think this is where we are and this is what's scary to me. It's not – this is my cynical viewpoint of the world. I think all of this is a very important exercise. We have to go through this exercise but in terms of real world meeting, this is where we are. And that this is the sad state of the world. And so it's like, okay, we're going through the motions because we got to go through the motions. I don't think it's going to matter. And I worry that the people who are tuning into this and hoping that this will matter because of course it should matter. I worry that we're setting ourselves up for like the giant mental health crisis. I, do, I genuinely believe well, yeah, that, like, well, the, people who, the yeah. people who are actually going to t- tune in to these hearings if they are tele- televised. The only people who will watch this, who will read a report, who will listen to what happens, are the people who believe that this is a problem. And the people who don't believe that this is a problem, who believe in the big lie, will either not tune into this, well, will definitely not tune into this, and they will only hear the spun version of this from Fox News or from the lawmakers who they vote into office. And so they won't even hear the truth if the truth comes out because they'll hear it in a spun up, weirdo, bizarro world way. And they don't give a shit about this. They don't care. And so that's, I just want everyone's expectation to not be, we're going to have these public hearings and and the world's going to write itself again. I just don't think that that's going to happen. I hope it does. I I agree with you. I agree with you uh, to the point that I don't think that it will have any political ramifications um, or it'll be marginal, you know, the political ramifications. And I do understand about the expectations, especially from a congressional committee, all right? You're just going to get information. And if the information is not applied with any legal muscle, it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Unless somebody goes to jail and everybody sees the person going to jail, then it's not going to matter, right? I mean, in a just world, Donald Trump would be in prison. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. in, in my uh, you know, formulation of what is just and based on just looking at what happened. I mean, and guys, the, the whole uh, all the members of Congress who've objected to the certification of Biden while this was happening and after, even after when they voted that night, there were objectors to it. They, they kept underlining it. They kept underscoring the lie. You know, how did these how are these people in office, you know, after having been a part of this and and they don't. They, it's a linguistic thing at this point. They don't agree it was a coup. They don't agree it was an insurrection. It was just a, you know, a kind of a mob theater thing that got out of control. So that's their interpretation of the whole thing. I fear that it'll be an outcome very similar or even mirroring what we saw in the Ukraine impeachment. Mm. Look, at the end of it, you know, you had Lamar Alexander as sane as a Republican as you could probably find, you know, he gets up there, he tells the Democrats, uh, the Democratic impeachment managers, look, you proved your case, but this is not impeachable. And I feel as though what we might see from this is a similar kind of 
framing of it, you know, this report is going to come out. They might say, look, you proved your case. These people were culpable to some degree. Their messaging, their narratives, their amplification of kind of these crazy ideas of of the big lie uh, played an absolute role in what we saw on January 6th. But shrug, nobody's going to be getting in trouble for it. And I just feel like that might be the way it works. And it's important. It's absolutely important to go through that process. But I don't know what real world like punishment, repercussion we're going to see come out of the commission, no matter how well they no matter how they well they prove their case. Yeah. Unless Merrick Garland steps up to the plate, which he's shown no sign of doing. Now, it may be that he's waiting for the political viability to, you know, flex his muscle on individuals who may have been involved with this at the elected official level. We don't know. I mean, I I could see there being, you know, heads roll that are kind of at these high levels or that were involved in it. But in terms of Donald Trump, no, it's just not. It's just not going to happen, in my view. I just feel like from a I don't know if there'll ever be a political environment where that will come to fruition, if that makes sense. And that's not to say that I I I just feel like what it would do, like what I, I think the like, look, I think January 6th is a perfect example of like what could happen. Look, he lost an election and this is what we saw. Imagine if he were to ever face any true legal repercussions for his actions, no matter how warranted. Uh, I completely agree with you. I also have heard from people who talk to him all the time uh, that our former president is like, it, you cannot get him started on talking on the, about the election still. Like if you, it, it will be yeah. hours. He will just completely go on a rampage about the election. Like he, he really believes the, the, the big lie and, uh, it's it's unbelievable. Well, a year yeah. out, he is still so stuck on this. I think that the only thing that has changed, and I think what you said earlier about the fact that if it's only gotten worse, I completely agree with you. The only difference is that we don't have someone in the White House who's spewing it every yeah. single day and on Twitter yeah. and on cable news talking about it and stirring them up and riling them up. I, I really think that like the entrenchment is more entrenched but we just don't have have a yeah, leader of that Joe's, entrenchment yeah. with a shovel saying like go dig. Yeah, and to Joe's mm-hmm. point, uh, you know, we have the like the Justice Department is you know run by Merrick Garland too. So so there are changes absolutely, and I do think we will see something come out of this. We have to look already if we've already seen seven hundred civilian arrests. Like I have a hard time, you know believing that that number is not going to climb and climb and climb and probably, you know, net, if not elected officials, but high profile individuals who kind of have been figures in this in this narrative and in Trump world. Yes, I absolutely think that. But I think to to Emily's point, it's almost, you know, when Joe, you you started the podcast with that quote about Donald Trump saying, you know, these are great American patriots who love their country. Well, we know he really thinks is these are great American patriots who love me. Like that's how he sees what happened on January sixth. To Donald Trump, it's not about you know these pe- these individuals' love of country. It's how he sees what they did as a love of him. I just think that's like his narcissism. In, in so many ways. I mean, that's but but exactly what you're saying is that at the end of the day, a bunch of like 
individuals, 700 plus, and a bunch of like low hanging fruit. Basically, just like Trump's rubes are all going to get uh, have legal blowback, but nobody in power is going to suffer any ramifications. And in fact, they can turn the entire thing into a political plus, which is we know that Trump is uh, great at by just pointing to these people and say they got a raw deal and that they're they're some sort of other form of patriot, right? Because they were just trying to undo this horrible thing that happened to Trump. But let's just turn the, uh, the questioning now to the Democrats for a second. You know, we mentioned Merrick Garland. He could become a, a factor in this if he chose, and one would hope that he would. But, you know, on the ground level, uh, people are asking, have the Democrats done enough to block and defend uh, voting laws at the state level? Have they been aware enough about this organized attempt to, you know, prepare for the next election and make it so that they can't, the Republicans make it so they can't lose? And has Biden been strong enough in trying to bring justice to bear? I'm sure he's, if you asked him, he'd say, well, let's see what Congress does. But on some level, uh, he's in power. Democrats have both houses and the executive branch. I would have thought that just more would have been done by this point to uh, defend against this erosion. Do you, Abby, talk to Democrats and about what they think about Biden's leadership around Trump and around the Republican Party's attempt to kind of re-engineer things in advance of these very crucial elections we're about to have? There's a definite fear among Democrats who I've spoken with and Democrats, especially on the ground in some of these states. And certainly there is a, I don't know if it's a disappointment, but, you know, some disappointment with Biden and sort of what's happening with voting rights at the, at the federal level. But I also think there is a disappointment in what's happening with you know with voting rights at the federal level uh but i also think there is a recognition of the reality of the of the senate that joe biden is dealing with and as a president sure you can you know you have that that pen and that power but there's also only so much you could do i think the reality is that writ large the democratic party needs to get its shit together at the local and state level because the Republican Party figured this out. They already figured this out, that that is where these laws are really happening. That is where you're actually seeing these changes happening, where the maps are being written that then can determine, you know, what, how to gerrymander a district or not. And the thing is, is Republicans have been laying the groundwork at that level and across and, you know, at these various levels of government that are below the federal level for years now. And Democrats need to catch up there. It's not necessarily going to happen, you know, in the House and in the Senate, because the realities of of the House and the Senate are the realities of the House and the Senate, whether or not we have a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. Republicans have been instrumental and incredibly effective at changing the dynamics at the state and local level where the real changes are happening to these maps and voting laws and voting rights. And Democrats need to crack that code more so than they need to, you know, twist Joe Manchin's arm at the Senate level, I think is sort of what you see from people who are really, really on the ground and kind of watching what's happening to districts and, and things of that nature.
know you you have to get down to Washington, but my last question for you is, are you at all hopeful that the Democrats are making some cracks and are cracking the code and are focusing on the right things rather than the useless political gains games that we've been sort of watching over the last year? Is there any hope for Democrats as you see it? I think so. You know, I, I do think so. I think when you talk to people at that grassroots level, you're seeing that. I think people see what happened in Georgia. Democrats see what happened in Georgia and, you know, Stacey Abrams work there as evidence that this does work, that you can make changes and you can make changes in states like Georgia. So the Senate race is always on Georgia. I think the special Senate races, they really instilled a hope in the Democratic Party as to what you can actually do. But they're definitely still playing catch up with Republicans on that front. But there is there is hope. There is excitement. And I think there is a recognition from uh, federally elected officials or state individuals in the Senate who are trying to do that. I, I spoke with actually Bernie Sanders last summer. And when you look at the candidates that he's backing and throwing his endorsement around and you speak with him, he says it's just as, as important to him to be backing progressives at, you know, the sheriff level, like the DA level, like in these kind of lower level positions where it really comes down to that. So when I spoke with him, he almost put more emphasis on these local state level races than even, you know, backing a house, a house progressive or something like that. So there is a recognition. And I don't think it's just, you know, is Bernie Sanders who's doing it. I think there has been an awareness, I think, especially post the Obama years, when you saw a massive erosion in terms of Democratic seats like across the country, there's certainly a recognition. And with every I think 2020 was a wake up call in so many ways as to what the importance is around a secretary of state, you know, because who cared before? Like nobody like we know now, like half a dozen secretary of state's names in very, you know, across the country. And it's like we never knew that. Nobody cared. And I think 2020 at least was a lesson in why those races matter. And I do think, you know, not only are voters paying closer attention, but I think other elected officials are also paying closer attention. But again, the Republican Party has never let up their focus on those races for, you know, decade plus. So, Joe, don't you think we should have Abby to come to give our silver lining all the time? That was a very thoughtful, very useful silver lining. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I totally agree with you, too, about uh, this whole thing's been an education in our government. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even know that a political party controlled the whole voting apparatus and from state to state. You know, that's, gee, that's something good to know. Um, it's almost as if the Democrats just learned too. <laughs> but that's what we're uh, trying to figure out. Like, um, and, and by the way, to Bernie Sanders' point, I mean, the next generation of leadership in, in that party uh, is going to come from the ground up, right? So mm -hmm. we need to start seeing some energy and some action on that as as Emily, the title of one of her previous podcasts is All Politics Are Local. And we're seeing that mm -hmm. down to the school level with the pandemic with, you know, try to go, show up or at a Zoom PTA meeting and see what that's like. I mean, that's there's energy at the ground level. Trump was way ahead of the curve and tapping into kind of like an entire world of political energy that nobody that Democrats mm -hmm. just weren't even paying attention to or aware of. 
And so, as you said, they're playing catch up, trying to figure out how they can address it. And maybe it's going to be in the progressive wing of the party. It almost certainly is going to have to be because there's just so little energy in the center, right? Um, Abby, thank you so much for coming on here. This has been yeah. also an education in the fact that we need to have Abby on. Could not agree more. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. It's so fun to catch up with you guys. Yes, I'll definitely come back. Oh, I, I will I will just leave us with, with A, saying, Abby, we love you. B, everyone go read Abby's incredible reporting on The Hive. It's, mm-hmm. it's a constant definitely. stream of excellent reporting. And C, if you are upset, about the energy with which people are showing up to their local politics. If it is not the thing that you want to see, then show up with your own energy. Yeah. This is something, Mm -hmm. if local politics are the thing that matters right now, and it seems like they are, that feels like a great way for everyone to actually do something. It's feasible. It's doable. It's in your backyard. It's the best, biggest way to make a real difference. So just show up and do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank Abby Tracy, our national political reporter for Vanity Fair magazine. Thank you for coming on the program. Thanks to our co-host, Emily Jane Fox, to our producer, Brett Fuchs, the good people at Cadence 13. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Come back to us week after week. Please support our sponsors the way they support this program. And we'll see you next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.